Thank you, Steve, for your prayer. I, just as you were praying, I was reminded of uh, so many people in my life uh, growing up in the church that uh, influenced me. I think about several of my uh, Bible teachers when I was uh, growing up in the church, several of the, the ladies that uh, really helped instill within me a love for God, a love for his word, to memorize passages of scripture, and to love his church. And so we are, we're thankful for not just those who have served our country, but maybe more importantly, who have served us in the church uh, this weekend and have given their lives sacrificially in that way. For those of you who don't know, uh, this Thursday, Scott Fertig and I are going to be flying out of Louisville, going to fly up to Newark, New Jersey, to Jersey, and then Thursday night we're flying from Jersey all across the Atlantic Ocean into West Africa, Lome, Togo, and we will be uh, crossing over into Ghana, doing a few things there, but we will spend the bulk of our time uh, in the country of Togo, uh, preaching the gospel, uh, planting new churches. Uh, we found a couple of areas where um, the, the church does not exist. Uh, in the last four or five years, I, we have covered all uh, as far south and as far north as you can get in Togo, but there are still a few pockets that we have found that um, uh, the church does not exist, and so we're going to try to break some new ground. Um, and so I want you to be in prayer. Uh, Mark Eddy prayed over us in our Bible class this morning, but I want you uh, to think about us, if you will, and when you do think about us, uh, just pray that God will keep us safe, he'll keep us healthy, uh, but that hearts will be opened uh, and receptive to the gospel message, and that the Holy Spirit would convict people of their sins so that they would give their hearts and their lives uh, to Jesus Christ. Would you do that? Would you do that for us? Thank you for, uh, for praying in that way. And then we're going to come back and bring you some uh, great news about what God has done with us and through us, because of us, in spite of us, maybe. Uh, we'll bring you some word about how great is our God and what's going on. Appreciate the reading of our text this morning. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 8, and I really sort of settled on this text because, Timothy, what you shared last Sunday uh, leading up to the Lord's Supper, so it just was on my heart, and uh, we're, going to look at, we're going to look at some stuff there this morning. It was June the 9th, 1973. A horse by the name of Secretariat, anybody heard of Secretariat, rode off into history, catapulted into the hearts and the minds of a lot of folks around our country. Uh, the setting was the Belmont Stakes. Uh, you guys are very familiar with uh, the Derby here in the Louisville area, but this was the third leg of the what they call the Triple Crown Race, the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness, and then the Belmont Stakes. I was only eight years old uh, at the time, but even I remember watching this on a show called The Wide World of Sports. Anybody remember that? On Saturdays, um, it would come on, and they, 
they uh, aired this race. Secretariat had won the previous two legs of the Triple Crown, and so people were beginning to wonder, is this the first horse in, a, in many, many years uh, to finally win the Triple Crown? But horse racing experts were sort of, um, were sort of split on this because uh, the horse secretariat was known uh, for great bursts of speed to start out fast and was very, uh, very fast from the, from the get-go. But the Belmont Stakes was the longest of all three races. It was, I think, a mile and a half long. So it wasn't as much a sprint as it was going to be uh, a marathon type of race. And if I, if I remember correctly, there was only, I think, five or six horses in, in the Belmont that year. I, I watched the race a couple of times this past week, and I just marveled. Uh, Secretariat burst out very quickly, and they were thinking that, you know, he's going to use all of his power and all of his strength, and he's going he's to start fading. But as the race wore on, there were, there were two horses, and they were starting to pull away from the rest of the pack, and then all of a sudden, Secretariat began to pull away from that horse and began to increase and go faster and faster, and it seemed like the longer the race, the faster that he got, and ultimately won, I think, by 31 links, a, def uh, a defeat that had never, a record that had never been seen before. Um, equally as astonishing as his record that day was the reaction of many in the crowd, they said that if you were present there, there were many in the stands that were watching Secretariat round uh, that corner and go into the stretch, and as he began to pull away, said many were just literally weeping in the stands. Uh, they probably had, had a winning ticket for one, I don't know, but, but it says that many people were just crying. They were weeping, and even the great golfer Jack Nicklaus said he was watching this on the television at home, and as Secretariat crossed the finish line. He says, tears were just pouring out of his eyes. It, it was that exciting. It was that amazing. God didn't create Secretariat with his extraordinary gift, his extraordinary beauty, and his extraordinary abilities for us to worship the horse. He didn't create the horse for us to ooh and to ah at how amazing Secretariat was. But God created that horse with all of his strength and all of his power and all of his beauty for us to step back and to be amazed at the God who created that horse. You know, I believe that every generation and every generation, I think God gives us people. God gives us certain individuals who are thrust onto the, onto the national stage, sometimes the worldwide stage. Some of them have great abilities maybe to sing. Maybe there are, are, are athletes who are just a cut above uh, everyone else. You think about from this area, there was a man... Uh, known as Muhammad Ali, who was known by many to be uh, the greatest, one of the greatest boxers in the history of boxing. I think, uh, when I think about growing up in high school, there was a guy named Michael Jordan who played. He was a few years ahead of me in, in college, and then I watched him play in the pros, and it just seemed like 
He was a cut above every other athlete on the, on the basketball court. I think God gives us these individuals that are catapulted onto the national, sometimes the world stage, not for us to ooh and to ah at those individuals, but for us to think, how awesome is our God that he can bestow those kind of gifts, those kind of talents, those kind of abilities on the people around us. As Romans chapter 1 says, he gives them to us as a means to worship the creator, to be in awe of him. Matthew chapter 8 is not ultimately given to us to say that God wants to calm the storms in our life. I think I have used that text in that way, and, and, and it's not a bad way to use the text. I've, I've preached that, and we'll talk about some of that as we go on this morning. Uh, the passage um, ultimately, I think, is about the sovereignty of God and what God calls us to do, just like what the disciples did there in verse 27. As Steve read, it says, and the men marveled. My Bible in the NIV says that the men were amazed at Jesus. Ultimately, the passage is not about you. It's not about me. This passage is not about us. It's not about our storms, but it's about the beauty and the majesty of Christ. And as a secondary application, I think we can, we can learn some things about navigating storms, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. But ultimately, this passage is about Jesus, his authority, his greatness. It's not about what he can do for us. One of the distinctive things about Matthew's gospel is that he's writing to a very religious people. Namely, he's writing uh, to the Jews. He's writing to people who go to the temple and they offer sacrifices. He's writing to people who memorize the first five books of the Bible. Did you, did you hear, what I, hear what I said? He, he's writing this to people who memorized not certain verses. They memorized all of the Pentateuch, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They memorized all of that. Very religious people. On average, he's writing to people that would give 20% to the church, to the temple. The very fact that Matthew writes a gospel to religious people Tells us, tells us that if a religious person dies without the gospel, then he or she goes to hell. That's how important this is. In Matthew chapter 7, in very specific terms, Jesus says to a, a, a group of highly religious people, he says, I can't let you into the kingdom. I can't let you into the kingdom. And they say to him, but, but didn't we prophesy in your name? I mean, didn't we drive out demons in your name? Didn't we perform many miracles in your name, Jesus? And he's going to say to them, yes, yes, you did, but I never knew you. I never knew you. 
You know, one of the greatest tragedies of hell will be that standing right next to each other will be virgins and fornicators. Standing right next to each other will be highly moral people and highly immoral people. Have you ever thought about that? Standing right next to each other will be people that were highly philanthropic, giving lots of money away for good causes. And then there will be people that are hoarders that just kept everything for themselves. Standing right next to each other. There will be people who attended church every Sunday of their lives, and there will be atheists who didn't believe in God. No amount of giving, no amount of church attendance, no amount of serving in a ministry is enough to save you. See, that's the problem with religion. That's the problem with religion. You never get there. You never arrive. It's always a rat race. You're always on the treadmill, running and running and running. I think it was years ago, uh, Lily Tomlin said about the rat race. She said, the problem with the rat race is that even if you win the race, you're still a rat. That's the problem. And that's the problem with religion. We just get on a treadmill. We've got to do more. We've got to, we've got to be involved more. We've got to work harder. That's why, for the most part, I think there are people, very religious people, that, that know nothing really of, of sustained joy. There's no joy in their service because it's always trying to do more, trying to work harder, trying to do something. Some of the most miserable people are religious people who are basing their righteousness, listen to me, they're trying to base their righteousness on themselves, on their own works. That's, that's one of the major differences between Christianity and every other world religion. The gospel says you cannot do it. You cannot be good enough. You cannot do enough good things for God to love you and for you to merit salvation. That's not how it works. Jesus says, I'll do it. I'll do it for you. And then we don't have to do good things. We get to do good things. We're blessed to work for Jesus. So in our text today, we see Jesus in the midst of a storm. As he has done for his followers and those other boats that were around Timothy, Jesus puts his finger to his lips and he says, be quiet, be still, peace. He exercises authority over the elements. And that word authority is a very, is a very fitting word for Matthew chapter 8. Uh, in the opening verses of the chapter, we see Jesus exercising authority over disease, over sickness. In these verses that we're going to look at today, we see him exercising authority over creation. And then in later in the chapter, if we were to read that, we would see him exercising authority over demons. Everything about Matthew chapter 8 
has to do with the king, Jesus, exercising authority. What is authority? Matthew, all the New Testament was written um, in a language called Greek. There are a couple of Greek words that talk about this idea of authority. And the first word is a word called exousia. Exousia. That is unquestioned authority that's tied to a person's position. Okay? For example, uh, you are a parent, you have a child, and you tell that child, um, I want you to go and to clean your room and to make your bed. What you are not doing is having a discussion about whether or not that should happen. You're not entering into a debate. As a parent, you are exercising your authority. Okay? You're telling them this is what should be done. There is a Another word that is related to this idea of authority, and that's the word dunamis. And, and I know that you've heard that word before. It's where we get our English word dynamite. It, it's this idea of, of sort of an explosive kind of power. Um, any basketball fans here this morning? We have any basketball fans? Um, used to, I, I mentioned Michael Jordan um, earlier. Uh, when I graduated high school, um, for the next 10 years or so, in my opinion, that was the heyday of the National Basketball Association, the NBA. You had um, the Boston Celtics and you had the Los Angeles Lakers. And then later in that decade, you had um, Detroit and then you had Chicago and they came on in the 90s. And, and just so many fantastic, awesome players. And I think about these guys that are in the NBA. You got a guy that's you know, six six, six eight, seven foot tall, just lean and muscular and powerful. These guys are are some of the best athletes on the planet, and they have a they have a power about them, a physical prowess, if you will. But then you got these little short guys, for the most part, that wear black pants and black and white striped shirts. You know what I'm talking about? The referees. If they were to try to play against these NBA players, you know, one-on-one, or if the referees decided to get a team together, how well do you think they would do against these NBA athletes? Not, not, very, not very well, right? But yet, that little short guy with the pinstripe on, if, if one of these big NBA-conditioned uh, athletes starts spouting off or maybe using some language that he shouldn't or he gets angry at the ref, the ref can do this. He can pop a technical foul. We call it popping a T on him. And if he gets a little bit more mouthy than that, you know what he can do? He can kick the guy out of the game, completely remove him from the court. Is it because, is it because he's so much more muscular or powerful than the NBA player? No but it's because there is some power, some authority that is inherent in his position. He has exousia. He has authority that's tied to his position. That's what we see in Jesus. 
The authority is so tied into his person, into who he is, that even the winds and the waves obey him. The storm that takes place in our text this morning happens on the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee, if you know anything about it, it sits some 680 feet below sea level. That's, that's sort of interesting. But because of that, and for the most part, it's a warm, peaceful, tranquil environment. But there's sort of a geographical nuance about the Sea of Galilee. There, there are a series of, of valleys and gullies on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. And sometimes when, when cold air moves in, it gets trapped. It gets trapped in those valleys and those gullies. But then eventually, that front will push, and it's forced onto this warm air of the Sea of Galilee. And, and you know what happens when, when cool air and warm air uh, meet up? It's called a storm. You have a storm. And they say in just a moment, without notice, there on the Sea of Galilee, one of these storms uh, can just pop up, becomes very violent. We see this immediate change in verse 24, Matthew chapter 8. Jesus got into the boat. His disciples followed him. Without warning, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the, that the waves swept over the boat. It says a furious storm, a great storm. In the Greek, it says a mega seismic, a mega seismic blows up. It must have been a great storm. I mean, these guys are fishermen, right? They have spent countless hours, maybe months and even years of their life fishing, but these guys are afraid. The boat begins to swamp, it begins to be covered with water. And these men are, I mean, they're, they're afraid. They're afraid for their lives. Have you, ever, have you ever been there in life when, when everything just kind of seems to be smooth and, and peaceful and tranquil, and then bam! Some of you woke up when I did that. I mean, just all of a sudden, out of nowhere, something pro uh, pops up, some problem, some health scare. Some of you here this morning know exactly what I'm talking about. You've experienced those things. Some of you are experiencing those kinds of things right now. Here's a question that we have to ask. How, how did these fishermen find themselves in the midst of the storm? How did these fishermen find themselves in the middle of the storm? How did they end up fretting for their lives? Verse 23, when Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. How did they get into the storm? Because they followed Jesus. That's why they're in the storm, Timothy, because they followed Jesus. So let me make a couple of statements here. 
Following Jesus does not insulate you from the storms of life. Following Jesus doesn't mean that you're not going to have any problems, you're not going to have any troubles. And secondly, and I think it comes right out of our text, sometimes God doesn't just allow storms to happen. I think sometimes he decrees them. He doesn't just allow them. I think sometimes he decrees them. Not all the time, but I think sometimes. Sometimes I experience these mega seismics, these storms of life, and I haven't done anything wrong. It's not because I've done anything wrong. But this text in Matthew tells me that sometimes, sometimes I can do everything right, I can cross all the T's and dot all the theological I's, and I can still find myself in the midst of a storm that's not of my making, that's not of my doing. And the reason that I'm in that storm is because I'm following Jesus. Are you with me? It's because I'm following him. And that's a very un-American thing to say, I think, because we subscribe to an American Jesus who exists for our own happiness. You see, somewhere in civics class, if we still took those, back in the day we learned that America is all about life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Isn't that right? And so we have bought into that, and our Jesus sometimes, sometimes, our Jesus exists for our own happiness. And to say that Jesus might lead me into a storm, that's kind of an un-American thing to say, Rodney. Think about Psalm 23. We love that psalm, don't we? That's one of the psalms that Sister Summers had us memorize, I sort of say made me memorize. She challenged us to memorize, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. David likens God to a shepherd, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. There's nothing that I need that I will be lacking he makes me to lie down in green pastures. He, he leadeth me beside still waters. He restores my soul. What a wonderful shepherd we have, right? But then you keep reading, and David says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Well, David likens himself to being a sheep, the Lord is his shepherd. Why is David walking through the valley of the shadow of death? It's because the shepherd led him there. Am I right about it? Okay. Sometimes we find ourselves in the valley because we're following the shepherd. Think about the book of Genesis. There towards the end, we're talking about the life of Joseph. Talk about experiencing storms in life, mega seismic. I mean, storm after storm after storm. He was betrayed by his brothers. He was left in a pit. 
They said, let's kill him. No, let's don't kill him. Let's just sell him into slavery. So they sold him into slavery. Once he's in slavery, he's lied about by Potiphar's wife. She accuses him of rape. They throw him into jail. Once he's in jail, he's forgotten about. And finally, finally at the, at the crescendo of the story, Joseph stands in front of his brothers and he says, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now he says, don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me for you to preserve life. Famine has been in the land these two years, and there are five years left in which there will neither be plowing nor harvest. But God sent me for you to preserve you for a remnant on the earth and to keep you alive for many survivors. He says, you meant this for evil, but God, God meant this for good. Everything that happens, Joseph places under the sovereignty of God. Good, bad, ugly. All of that he places under the sovereignty of God. And he says, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. Oh, we could look at Job. Um, none of this fits into the American Jesus that, that too many of us have crafted in our own minds. Job chapter 2, it's right on the hills. Job has lost everything. He's lost his possessions, his health, his children. Job chapter 2, his wife says to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Just curse God and die. And then Job says to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Listen to this. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? One version says, shall we receive good from God and not receive evil? Why does God do this? Why does God allow us to go through these storms? Maybe even decree them sometimes, maybe not always. Why does he do that? Romans 8 and verse 28. It's a passage I think that we've taken out of context way too many times. But it just simply says, and we know that in all things, all things, how much is all? All things. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Those of us who love God, who have been called according to this purpose, God is working all things out for our good. It doesn't say all things are good. It doesn't say everything that's going to happen to you in your life is a good thing. It says that 
all the things that are going to happen to you in your life, good, bad, and different, God is going to work all of that out for your good if you love him and you've obeyed his commandments. Those disciples were in the middle of a storm for the simple fact that they had followed Jesus for no other reason. You might be asking, well, how, how do we navigate these storms? That's a, that's a secondary application of the text, so let me address it real quickly here. Here are these fishermen, their boats being swamped by water, and Jesus is asleep. Jesus is asleep. So my answer to the question of how do we navigate the storms in our lives I guess I would say we need to simply look to the sleeping Jesus. Look to the sleeping Jesus. Our text tells us that Jesus is asleep, and if Jesus is asleep in the middle of a storm, then you can rest easily. Maybe the most faithful thing that you can do is to just lie down and go to sleep and trust Jesus. You know, Scott and I are fixing to get on a, on a plane, Lord willing. We're going to get on a plane Thursday. And I have flown enough, I've been on enough of these trips, that any time you, you get up in an airplane, you, there's the possibility of some turbulence. Brian, I'm, Scott, am I right? There's always the, the possibility of a little turbulence. This is kind of how I gauge things, you know. When I'm sitting there and um, the... The stewardess, the flight attendants, they're coming down and they're, 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 pushing, they're pushing their little drink cart and they got the, you know, the, the peanuts and the snacks and all those kind of things. When they're pushing that cart down and you hit a little bit of turbulence, if they just kind of keep serving, you know, then, then I feel like everything is okay. But when the pilot comes on and, and tells them to stop serving, and they go sit down and they buckle up. That, that's kind of when I go, hmm, what's going on here? And that plane starts, you know, bobbing like this. All the times I've flown, I've never been scared by that except once. I literally thought, well, my first thought was, I don't get any peanuts. But then it felt like, we might go down. I mean, I mean, the turbulence was so strong, uh, it was it just like you drop like a hundred, hundreds of feet all of a sudden, and your stomach is like way up there. And I thought, Lord, this, if this is it, okay, but I don't want this to be it. <laughs> you know, I don't want it to be it. But you kind of gauge, you kind of gauge how you how you feel about things based upon what those flight attendants are doing. If they're not worried, if they're still serving peanuts and Diet Cokes, everything's cool. But when they, when they strap in, you kind of think maybe something's to this. If Jesus is asleep in the boat, you can, you can rest easily. Everything's all right. But I want you to think about this. When the storm hits, they go to Jesus and they say, <laughs> Don't you care that we are perishing? Aren't, 
you worried that we're going to drown? Jesus awakens and he stands up. This, don't, don't miss this. This is, this is so beautiful. This is, this is a foreshadowing, I think, of what, what is to come. Jesus, he's asleep. He's lying down. He's asleep. And what happens? They wake him up. He rises and he says to the storm, be quiet, peace, be still. When the trouble comes, Jesus stands up and he defeats that problem. He calms the storm. Do you see, do you see what I'm saying? Jesus is asleep, but then he gets up. Does that remind you of anything else? Three days in the grave, what happens? He rises. Don't, don't miss that. That's, that's something that I've read many, many times, and I just, I just passed over it. That is so beautiful. Jesus is asleep, and now he is ri- he's risen, and he's taking care of the problem. In the passage, we see Jesus, he's a He's fully a man and he's fully God. Creation has to obey him. Why? Because he's the one that created creation. Listen to Colossians. We, we've been studying. We just wrapped up the book of Colossians this morning in, in Mark's class. Colossians 1, Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, listen, by him all things were created. Things in heaven, things on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. How is it that he can stand up and say, peace, be still, and the winds and the waves obey him? How is that possible? It's because creation works for him, (laughs) not the other way around. He created creation. After Jesus rebukes the winds and the waves, what time is it? Wow. We got a little bit more to say. After he rebukes all of this, there's this great calm, this, this peace, this tranquility. Just like that. Verse 27, this is why the text, I think, was given to us. Look at verse 27. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. When Scott read the text, uh, when Steve read the text to us this morning, sorry, when Steve read it, he, his version said, the men marveled. It means to be amazed, to be astonished. Notice that the, notice that the men didn't marvel that their circumstance had changed. They marveled at Jesus. They marveled, not that the winds and the waves died down, but they're looking at the one who made it happen. They're amazed at him, marveling at the Christ. 
Have any of you ever bought a, gone to a jeweler and bought a diamond? Maybe you were going to buy something for uh, an engagement ring or an anniversary or something. You go in and they, they pull out these diamonds. And, and do you know how they display those things? They don't lay them on, on the glass counter. You know how they display them? They, they, they bring out this luxurious black cloth. And then they put the diamonds on that. You know why they do that? Because against the backdrop of that black cloth, this diamond just, bam, it just pops. It just sparkles. If you're looking at it through a piece of clear glass, it, it doesn't have quite the same effect. So they lay that out on that beautiful, luxurious black cloth so that that diamond will just sparkle, will just pop. The storms in your life, that's the black cloth, the cancer, the health scare, the unemployment, the wayward child. That is the black cloth so that when Jesus shows up, he just shines in the midst of our storms. When you're going through the health scare, and some of you are, when you're praying for your wayward child, and some of you are, when you've lost your job, some of you have, I pray that people will see you and not just marvel at your deliverance, but they would marvel at the one who delivered you. Let's bow. Our God and our Father, you are so amazing. Jesus, you are so powerful. The creator who spoke all of this into existence. Father, it's so easy to look around us, to marvel at this or that, but Father, we want to stop and pause and realize you alone are worthy for us to be amazed at, to be just to, just to marvel at your beauty and your goodness and your power. Father, we need you. We cannot do it alone, nor would we try, should we try. Jesus, we ask that you calm the storms in our life, but Father, more than that, we just want to sit back and marvel at Jesus how beautiful he is, and how beautiful is the body of Christ here and now. Father, may we look at each other and love each other more deeply, strongly, and from the heart with sincerity so that the world will know that we belong to you and that there is a God who can speak 
calmness in the midst of our storms. Jesus, we love you. Holy Spirit, we love you. Father, we love you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.